Hey, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. In today's society, it seems like we live in a world more shaped by our phones than our Bibles. And one area of our cultural narrative that's been completely taken over by this is sexuality. Our culture prioritizes gratifying self rather than glorifying God. So this week, Chris is going to dive into that topic and how it impacts our lives. Let's listen in. Well, hello and welcome back. We are going to do something completely different this week. We are hitting the pause button on our series in Genesis. We've been going through Genesis for 17 or 18 weeks now, and we bumped into something that we really need to stop and talk about. Last week, Chris Dew was here, and he he taught on Sodom and Gomorrah and did a phenomenal job with that. If you missed that message, go back and listen to it. But Sodom and Gomorrah begs the question, What does God have to say about sex and sexuality? Because that's kind of what Sodom and Gomorrah was known for. And really, most of Genesis begs this question. I mean, going back to the beginning, God makes a man and a woman, and he puts them in the garden together naked and says, make babies. You know, so, I mean, we see from the very first, this idea of sex and sexuality, and then we watch as society devolves into chaos and we see all kinds of sexual dysfunction along the way. Even in the life of Abraham, as, as, uh, as he sends his wife, uh, as they go into Egypt, and he, he tells her, just say you're my sister, and she ends up in the harem of the, the king there, and you're scratching your head going, what the heck is going on here? Uh, Abraham uh, sleeping with his or her maidservant, Hagar, and, and so you're scratching your head going, that, that doesn't seem right. And and it's not. These stories are in there to help us understand how to avoid perils and, and not go there. The, the mistakes were included. And then, of course, last week we were, we were in Sodom, and it was just completely out of control. And it begs the question, what does God have to say about this topic? And it, this may be one of the more important topics to understand what God has to say about because it impacts our lives on almost every level. Now, admittedly, this is an awkward conversation. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to have the talk, okay? Um, you know, last week we were, um, we were doing our Windshape Camp, and at the end of Windshape Camp, uh, Chick-fil-A came in and did a, uh, a free meal for all the families, not just the, the campers, but all the families, and they brought the Chick-fil-A cows. And uh, and my son, Deuce, got to be the big Chick-fil-A cow. So he walks in, every all the kids are like, woo! completely mobbed. It was awesome. And afterwards, uh, Stacy, who's the operator of St. Clairsville Chick-fil-A and goes to our church, a friend of mine, and Deuce and I were standing there and Deuce is like, well, you know, it was a boy cow because it had horns. And I was like, Deuce, it is time to have the talk. I know you're 17, but we need to have the talk. I said, horns do not make a cow, a boy cow or a girl cow. Girl cows can have horns. And his eyes got about this big, really? I said, yes. I said, what makes a boy cow a boy cow is that it has a penis. And what makes a girl cow a girl cow is that it has a vagina. And then it has four danglies that are, that are udders that they milk with, but never try and milk a boy cow. And so we had this kind of awkward conversation right there. And Stacy was losing his mind and laughter on the floor. It was really a funny moment, but it can be an awkward conversation, but it's one that we have to have. The reality of most of our lives is that we were created with a capacity and a desire for sex that is huge. The other reality is we live in a culture that is hypersexualized. 
sexual images, sexual ideas, sexual encouragement, all of these things. And when you take the capacity and the desire for sex that's wired into us for a very good reason, and you apply all this sexualization, it's like, it's like giving an addict a drug. And as a culture, we are swimming in a drug and we need to unpack that and understand this. See, as Christians, our worldview and our behavior in this regard, and in so many others really, is being shaped more by our phones and more by our politics than it is our Bibles, and that's a problem. That's a problem. And many of us have simply bought into the cultural narrative when it comes to sex and sexuality. We like you know, we kind of pick and choose. We do smorgasbord Jesus. We pick and choose the parts we like. We like the grace. We like the forgiveness. We like the, the way he makes us feel and, 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 and all of that. We want all the blessings. But when it comes to this text thing, well, it's kind of old-fashioned, you know, and, 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 and then people will go out on, online and try and find somebody who will tell them the Bible says what the culture says about sex is just fine, which you can find somebody on the internet to tell you anything. Don't go looking for biblical truth there. We have to talk about this because sexual sin is one of the prime ways that I've observed that Satan uses to try and take us out. There is a generation of men who have been sidelined because they are addicted to sexual sin. The church, we're looking around, and not just our church, but around the whole country, the whole world, we're looking around, where are the men? The men have lost their moral authority to stand up and lead and fight and, and, and move things forward. And a lot of the women have too. It's a big deal. You know, we like to say sin is, is sin. And it is from the perspective of Jesus can forgive this sin as much as he can forgive any other sin, but there are real practical consequences to this one. It is different. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 acknowledged that. He said, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. This one's different. There's something that goes on inside of us, and I, will, I, I would say it jacks us up on the inside, in our hearts and in our minds, in a way that other sins don't. Is it worse than any other sin in, in as much as God can forgive it? No, it's not. God can totally forgive and redeem this. But does it do more uh, collateral damage in our lives than other sins? Yes, it does. And as we go through this message today, I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. So, with all that said, you would expect my first point to be, and I want you to write this down, take out your notes, write this down. First point is this. You would expect the first point to be, sex is bad, don't do it. That is not the first point. The first point is this. Sex is a really, really good thing, and God approves. Sex is a really, really good thing, and God approves. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we see God creating mankind. And it says, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So God, God makes humanity. He makes, he makes people in his image. And it, it, not, not that God is a man or a woman. God is, 
is, is not a sexual being, he's a spiritual being. He, he, he does not have a, a gender or a, a sex as we would, we would look at it, but, but he made us in his image in that we have the capacity to reason, we have the capacity to love, we have the capacity to be creative, we have the capacity to be in relationship with him and with one another. He made us a special and amazing creation, the pinnacle of all creation. In his image, the rest of creation is not made in his image. And then it says, male and female, he created them. So he does something different here. Both men and women are created in the image of God in the ways that I just talked about. But now on a practical level, on a physiological level, he makes us different. He breaks us into two categories. There's male and female. There's some basic differences. We have different parts. He made us with the capacity to fit our bodies together in a way that is amazing. He made us so that our parts fit perfectly together. And in the midst of that, bring great pleasure. He's putting millions of nerve endings in these parts. But it's not just physical and it's not just pleasure. He has, he has built into this act of sex, sex and sexuality the facilitation of intimacy. They were naked and they had no shame. There's, there's nothing to hide in this relationship. There is something very special, very miraculous, very real and raw in a holy sense going on in this act. He designed it also such that it would bond us together emotionally and spiritually and neurologically. There is a biochemical reaction in the brain during the sexual act. Things like dopamine and oxytocin and neuroepinephrine and other chemicals are released in our bodies as we come together in a, in a sexual act with another person, with, in this case, designed with husband and wife. We come together and, and those things bond us together on an emotional level, on a neurological level, on a spiritual level that we don't completely understand, but we do now understand that there's you know, that biochemical thing going on. That's why we call it chemistry, right? Um, and God built all of these things into, like, created us in his image, but then made us sexual beings with sexual parts and capabilities, and then and put us together, and, and he built this. It's just amazing when you think about everything that's built into it, and at the pinnacle of it is the ability to create new life. I mean, it's amazing when you stop and you think about everything that is involved in this amazing gift called sex. Well, it says in verse 28 that God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So he puts them together in the garden naked. I am sure when Adam first saw Eve, it took his breath away. He shuddered a little bit. There's no shame. And he goes, now, make love, folks. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what he said. God is not shocked by human sexuality. He created it. It was a gift from him. Sex is really a really good thing, and God approves. Second point, write this down. Sex is a really powerful force for good 
or for bad. As you know, or as many of you know, I have a motorcycle. It is an adventure motorcycle. I'm very specific about the kind of motorcycle I like to ride. It's an adventure motorcycle. I can pack all my gear on it and head off into the woods or down the back roads and into the mountains for a couple weeks and just disappear and go camping and explore and see things and, and ride. And, and, and my, my uh, motorcycle holds about five gallons of gas. And it doesn't run without gasoline. I have to put gasoline in it. In that respect, gasoline is a really good thing, right? So if I take five gallons of gas and I put it in my bike, I can take off down the road for about, oh, I don't know, five or seven hours. I can drive to the other side of the state. I can go places, but that's not all. Not only can I go places, I can have a blast doing it. It is sheer joy being on the road, bluegrass music in my ear, and gasoline taking me where I need to go. Now, maybe you don't ride a motorcycle. Maybe you want to go on vacation. You put gas in your car. It takes you places. In Gasoline was made for a purpose, and it was made for a context. In, inside the internal combustion engine, it gives us power. It takes us places. It brings us sheer joy. Right? But if I were to take five gallons of gasoline and I were to pour it here on the stage, bloop, 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 and I were to light a match, what's going to happen at that point? That's not the context that it was made for. It's going to explode, and I'm going to end up looking like this guy with a lot of scars and a lot of pain because that's what happens when we use it out of context. I've, for years, I've been familiar with this, this kind of object lesson of, of uh, kind of trying to explain what happens in a casual sexual relationship where you take a man on this side, a picture of a man and a picture of a woman on this side, and you put glue on them and you stick them together. It's very hard to get them apart. And if you're, if you're persistent, I'm not going to actually show you because it's very hard to get them apart and it would be awkward. But, but if, if, if you work at it, and I've done this in the past, you work at it, you can get them apart, but there are pieces of him on her and pieces of her on him. It was designed to bond two people together in a relationship so close and so intimate and so solid for life that the two would become one. That's part of what it exists for. And when we are casual with it, when we just sleep with him or her or what, whatever, and multiple sexual partners, or we end up tearing pieces of ourselves and, and tearing pieces and carrying pieces of other people and tearing pieces off of them, and the collateral damage is devastating. And we see it all the time. Sexual brokenness is rampant. It was designed, the context the engine in which it was designed to be, be run in was in the engine of marriage. It was designed to be fully expressed and fully enjoyed in a God-honoring marriage. You see, it's God's wedding present to you. You know, your Aunt Betty might get you a toaster. God got you sex. And the collateral damage when we engage outside of that context is devastating. Now, I believe what, what has happened in, in, in our world and in the world that most of us have grown up in, some of us are a little bit older, but 
but we've started to adopt the cultural narrative. And the cultural narrative on sex is that sex is just physical. It's just pleasure. It's just the opportunity to, to uh, gratify ourselves, to gratify somebody else, and everybody should do it. Guys, that's a lie. There's no such thing as casual sex because of the emotional bonding, because it is a sacred, spiritual act, and it is spiritual. And in, in a loving, committed, God-honoring marriage, it is as spiritual as prayer or Bible reading or anything else. It is a sacred act, and it's a life-creating act. And the idea is in the context of that bond and that safety and that intimacy and that love, children can come up safe, insulated, loved, and not worried about everything coming down around them. Our cultural narrative is that sex is just physical. The other cultural narrative is that sex is the ultimate pleasure, and everyone has a right to that pleasure. So just do it. It feels good. Where does that come from? It's interesting because if you look at the history of this, that narrative backs up to a guy, psychologist named Sigmund Freud. He was around at the beginning of the 20th century. Freud, whose whose, uh, theories have been debunked and discredited, uh, has had undue influence on our culture, considering that his theories have been debunked and discredited. He, he believed that, that sex was the, the primary motivator of mankind, that, like everything revolved around sex, and that even small children, even toddlers could experience sexual pleasure and be sexualized and should be, and should be. It turns out Freud was a bit of a pervert, and that he was a sex addict. And, 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 and for him, absolutely sex was the primary motivator because for any addict, the thing they're addicted to will be their primary motivator. A heroin addict's primary motivator is heroin. It was a bad theory. Well, he goes on to influence a guy named Kinsey. Kinsey is a professor at Indiana University in the 1950s, and he performs a battery of tests on children trying to prove Freud's theories where they would bring in babies and toddlers and preschoolers all the way up and they would sexually stimulate them trying to facilitate orgasmic release. And they had all these perverted men doing it. And and the, the data, when you go back and you look at it, the data was manipulated. He had an agenda he was pushing, but the Kinsey experiments have gone on to influence our culture in ways you can't even believe. This was in the 1950s. In the 1950s, if you watched television, you couldn't find a married couple, let alone a single couple or you know a non-married couple, sleeping together in the same bed. Ozzie and Harriet had separate beds. Today, you can't find a television hardly without naked people bumping all over each other. How do we get from there to there? Freud and Kinsey. They have influenced our world in such a way. And the sexualization of our culture and getting younger and younger and younger, I've watched it in my lifetime, and so have you. Guys, I'm here to tell you sex is not 
the center of the human experience. It's an important part of the human experience in, in the context of marriage. Very, very important. But it is not the center of human existence. It is not the primary motivator. It is not the primary thing that's going to give you fulfillment in this life. It will jack you up out of context and leave you burnt. It's horrific, the carnage we see in our world today in regards to this. And the lies that not only the world around us has bought, but that we have bought because we're swimming in the same water. (sighs) Brings me to point three. Write this down. Your most significant sex organ. Your most significant sex organ is between your ears. Your brain is wired for sex. God made it that way. So that when you on your wedding night stand and see your naked spouse for the first time, it takes your breath away. You're in. That's what it was designed for. But when we start sexualizing that brain, when we start feeding it arousal and lustful thoughts before that, it becomes addictive. It begins to do to our neurology what was only supposed to be done once we were married. You see, pornography, we know this from neuroscience now, pornography cuts deep neuropathways. They're called neuro-ruts into your brain. And once those get established, they're hard to get out of. It's part of the addictive process. When you are married and you make love to your spouse, there's a deep neurochemical reaction and there's spiritual and other things that we don't understand. There's so much going on there. It's part of the gift of sex. But when it's used out of context, it begins to corrupt our hearts and our brains. And the question always is, the question that I I get asked by, by people, the question I asked when I was a young man, was what is the line? How far can you go and still be okay, like you're not breaking God's rules, right? I, and, um, you know, is it, is it first base? Is it second base? Is it third? Certainly not home because, you know, that's... that's uh, but, you know, I mean, as long as you stay above the waistline, I mean, what, what, how far is too far in a premarital relationship? <laughs> Jesus addresses this. He takes it head on. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus Jesus said this, You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's referring to one of the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. He said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want you to underline lustfully. Lustfully. Guys, the line is not a body part. The line is not a, a kiss. The line is not a, a look. The line, the line is lust. The line is arousal. And now, you can't go through this life without being aroused from time to time, but you can cut that off at the pass and walk away, or you can choose to indulge that arousal. Jesus goes on to say, if if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, if if he were speaking in, in today's kind of context, I think what he would say is if your smartphone causes you to sin, throw it in the frickin' river and buy a flip phone and deal. Do whatever it takes. And I mean, some of you are like, okay, how can I live without my, my smartphone? Figure it out. It isn't worth losing your soul over. It isn't worth losing your soul over. And see, this is what we do in our culture, and this is why Jesus is so stinkingly brilliant, because he understands this is where it starts. This is where the chemical release begins. This is where these things start to get burned into our hearts and our minds, and it begins to hijack our lives, and it becomes an addiction, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing things we never thought we would do. Lust is the problem. Lust is the problem. You fill your mind with sexual images and thoughts and fantasy and all that stuff, and you're on a roller coaster ride, babe. You are. And here's the deal. You can totally control what you look at. You have, you have, especially if you don't cross that line, you can control what you look at. You can't control what it does to you once you look at it. It runs free in your mind like a drug that was just injected into your, your vein. And in the context of marriage... There is, there is this sacredness, this supernaturalness that, that prevents it from jacking you up. But outside of that, man, it jack, it's jacked up our entire world. And ultimately, it comes out in how we live. Luke 4, or 6, 45, Jesus said, a good man brings good things out of this good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our behavior will ultimately reflect what's going on in here and and up here. Guys, the key to not getting a heroin addiction is to never use heroin. And the key to not being controlled by lust is not opening your eyes, your mind, your heart to lust in the first place. And I acknowledge that's really hard to do in 2022. But we can do it if we know we need to. If we're willing to fight, you totally can. See, we're not just supposed to save our virginity for our spouse. We're supposed to save our mind. We're supposed to save our mind. So that on that, that first night after you say, I do, and you're standing before one another naked and unashamed, it rocks your freaking world, takes your breath away. But if you've got all these other images and all these other experiences, it's like, nah, whatever. And you're missing out on so much of what God has for us in a biblical, loving, caring, vibrant marriage. And we look at each other differently. Guys, one of the evils of lust is just objectification. We, we, we begin to, because with any addiction, we want, we want another hit. We want another hit, and we want 
because our bodies were wired for that, because we fed it, and we, you know, a lot of the same receptors in our brain as as a drug addiction. We, we, you know, a drug addict will will hurt, lie, cheat, steal, whatever to get what they want, and other people are just a means to their ends. It's objectification. The same thing is true with this. Found an amazing article from the Australian Childhood Foundation. It was written several years ago. And they found this with adolescents, and of course this applies to everybody. Research on the impact of internet pornography on adolescents found that adolescent consumption of internet pornography was linked to attitudinal changes, including acceptance of male dominance and female submission as the primary sexual paradigm, with women viewed as sexual playthings eager to fulfill male sexual desires. Women become objects. They also, in the same report, they said this, sex offenses by school-aged children. Now, this was from 2012 to 2016. So as, I think the the iPhone came out in 2007. So this this is as the phone is becoming ubiquitous among teenage users, right? It took a couple years to get for, before the parents got a phone, now the kids are getting a phone. Sex offenses by school aged children have quadrupled in Australia in only four years during the on-ramp of cell phones. Authorities cited cited attribute increased exposure to online pornography for the rise. Sex wasn't designed to be turned on. Sexual desire wasn't designed to be fed until our wedding night. That was God's design. I know it's so foreign to everything we know in this society. But when you come together on that night and you mix together love and commitment and intimacy and friendship and partnership and family and sexual desire and the ability to make new life, that motorcycle will take you places. Oh, it's good. And the problem that we face today is in our culture, we are turning on sexual desire and lust at earlier and earlier and earlier ages. Lust and sex are not only accepted, but expected for all ages. You know, the influence of Freud and Kinsey on our educational system, we are now, uh, as promoted through the United Nations and the National Education Association, we are now seeing throughout our country this comprehensive sex or sexual education where they're encouraging kids in elementary school and younger to view porn. It's totally normal and giving them links to porn sites to explore their sexual pleasure and preferences in elementary school and younger. And we are making little sex addicts and wrecking people's lives. And yeah, the internet has accelerated this, sure, but the sexualization of our culture started before I was born in the 1960s. I was born in 70, by the way. None of us who've grown up since then have escaped its impact. It's everywhere you look. And as a culture, we're very much like Sodom. We have given or we are giving ourselves over to lust. And once you do, everything spins out of control. Societies crumble. Today, 56% of divorce cases involve a partner's obsessive interest in porn sites. 
56%. I can't stop. It's interesting, uh, that same, same source said 64, or uh, 15, no, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to watching porn at least once a month. The number's higher. I remember uh, back in the early 1990s, there was a movement called the Promise Keepers Movement. It was before the internet. I know, there was life before the internet, hard to believe. And they would fill stadiums with men, Christian men, who were saying, I'm going to promise to be faithful to my wife. I'm going to promise to father, follow God. It was the promise keepers. They were making promises, and they wanted, to be on, they wanted to honor God with their lives. And they did surveys at these events, and they found that 70% of men pre-internet had viewed pornography within the last 30 days at their events. These are the guys that are trying, and those are the guys that would admit to it. Today, it's estimated somewhere between 75 and 99% of men, Christian and non, are struggling with a pornography addiction. And we think, well, if I get married, that'll solve the problem, right? I mean, it goes away. Obviously not. We're seeing this divorce rate and, and this attributed to it. It doesn't just go away. You've conditioned your, your neurology on garbage, and real intimacy doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It's diluted. It's dysfunctional because that's what it does to us. I don't know, about 10 or 15 years ago, I, I had a friend who uh, at the latter part of his college years found Jesus. And, um, and we walked together for, for several years. And, uh, but up until he became a Christian, he had a pornography addiction. And so he, he kind of, he walked away from that when he came to Christ, fought the fight because it's always a fight, but walked away from it. And I had the honor and the privilege to do his wedding. He found one of the most lovely women you could imagine, beautiful. And they decided that before they got married, they were going to, to remain faithful to one another and faithful to God. They were going to stay abstinent, and they were going to stay sexually pure, and they did a great job at that, and they had a wonderful courting process. And I remember coming back together with him after a month or so of marriage. I said, how's it going? He said, I'm a mess. I'm like, what's going on? He said, all that porn has destroyed my mind. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, it's like I pulled a pin out of a hand grenade and stuck it in my mouth and it went off between my ears. I, I can't get those images out of my head and she's not those images and I don't know that we're going to make it. And I wondered for a year or two whether they would make it. They fought and they fought. Now, I'm happy to report 15 years later, they've got kids and a happy marriage and everything else, but it was hell getting there. That's what we do to ourselves. And we taint this gift, this amazing honor that God has given us in sex, in sexuality. That's what addiction does to us, guys. Lust is an addiction. And whether it's porn or fantasy or prostitutes, it hijacks your brain and it hijacks your heart. And it dilutes the power and the purpose of sex once you're married. As Chris said last week, it will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. 
And all of us have been touched by it because of the world that we've grown up in. Sodom and Gomorrah was the final manifestation of a culture that had given itself over to lust and sensuality. Because when we do that, it becomes all about us and our gratification, and other people become a means to an end. And it also inside of us goes in all kinds of perverse and wicked directions. Guys, this is the water we're swimming in. That's what Chris said last week, and I agree with him. Actually, I'll put it this way. This is, the, this is the pickle juice we're swimming in. My friend Vicky sent me this this week, and I think it's just so appropriate. It's from a counselor named Waylon Ward, and it's called the Pickle Principle. He says this, in order to make pickles, we put cucumbers in a brine solution of vinegar, spices, and water. After a cucumber soaks in the brine long enough, it is changed into a pickle. Most of us are like pickles. We sit in the brine of a sex-saturated culture, absorbing its values and beliefs, and it changes the way we think. Even most Christians are pickled today, believing and acting exactly like everyone else who has been sitting in the brine of a culture hostile to God and His Word. The world's sex-saturated brine includes the belief that sex is the ultimate pleasure. The message of much TV, movies, and music is that there is no greater pleasure available and that it is the right of every individual, even teenagers or younger, to have this pleasure. Another aspect of this pickling process is the belief that no one has the right to deprive anyone else of this greatest of all human pleasures, that no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong about the expression of his or her sexuality. The purpose and the goal of sex is primarily pleasure. If the purpose and goal of sex is primarily pleasure, then other people are just objects to be used for sensual gratification. And since people are infinitely valuable because God made us in His image, that is a slap in His face, whether we realize it or not. The Christian perspective is that the purpose of sex is relational. With pleasure as a byproduct, the Bible teaches that sex welds two souls together. It is so powerful that it is only safe within a committed covenant marriage relationship. It's like the difference between wild energy of lightning or gasoline compared to the harnessed power of electricity. God knew what He was doing when He limited sex to within marriage. Following God is countercultural, unapologetically. And in this case, that's offensive to some people. But this is the truth. And, the, and the, the truth of it is almost every one of us has been broken sexually, some by a lust addiction, some by abuse because of somebody else's lust addiction. Some of us have been cheated on or harmed, or used in some other way. And God sees that, and it breaks His heart. It wasn't His design. But here's what I know. Jesus died for all of that. By His wounds, you can be healed. He can heal your broken heart. He can redeem your marriage. He can set you free from a lust addiction. He can walk you through this but you have to turn to Him. You have to surrender to His plan and stop living yours. 
Guys, any addiction, the way to, to, the way to get through an addiction is to starve the addiction. You've got to stop viewing anything that causes you to lust. Stop doing anything that causes you to lust, that creates that chemical release in your system. You know when it happens. Take three steps back and don't cross that line. If you're living with somebody that you're not married to, we used to call that living in sin. You know why? Because it's living in sin. Not popular today. Move out. Maybe you should consider marrying them. Maybe you shouldn't seek wise counsel on that, but don't just live with somebody you're not married to. It's never too late to do the right thing. Many people, so many young people I talk to today are, are shacking up because it's financially more viable or, well, we couldn't get the venue for two years and we got this perfect wedding planned and, and all of that. And so we can't get, so we're just going to live together for the next two years. And you're trading faithfulness to God and intimacy with your spouse for some pictures to put on Instagram and a party. Stop it. Move out. And get honest. Get honest with yourself. Go to God and admit what's going on. If you're married, get honest with your spouse. This is a tearful conversation. This is, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't even know how to get out of it, and we got to get figured out together. Conversation. Get honest with some other people. You know why recovery programs work? Because there's a group because there's other people to hold you accountable, other people to help bear the load, to, to, to walk with you and share their experiences and all of that. Every Monday night here at, or at the church, we have a, a men's group, and they don't sit around in a circle and go, hi, my name's Bob, and I'm a sex addict. Hi, Bob. They don't do that. But what they do is they do life together. They're honest with one another, and you can't do it alone. These addiction, This addiction if that's where you are, is more profound than many or most drug addictions. Guys, it's never too late to do the right thing. Jesus can and he will meet you in the midst of it. He will heal you. And he's got life for you on the other side. That's the good news. But we have to turn away from it. We have to repent. I'm going to leave you with this scripture today. 1 John 1. 8 and 9, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you're just pretending like you got it all together, stop it. But if we confess our sins, if we turn from our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God can forgive you completely. He can heal you totally. And he can give you the life that you've always wanted. Turn and surrender to him today. Let's pray. Lord, we can't do any of this without you. And you know the world that we live in, and you know where we are, and you know where we've been, and you know what we've done. And so we throw ourselves on your mercy. We ask for your intervention in our lives. God, and we pray that you would give us everything we need to follow you and walk away from the lies we've been fed. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.